coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. What I hope, anybody listening to this and all the people you work with and coach, and that sort of next generation will redefine what human recovery is all about so that we can actually manage it much better for what's to come. That was our guest for today, Nick Littlehales. You can hear more from Nick very soon. But first, we have to say a big thanks to the overarching sponsor of the show, Hawora. It's a performance well-being growth partner that looks to impact on individual and organizational health and well-being through four key pillars, physical, mental, social, and occupational. So do make sure to check it out at haworalife.com, H-A-U-O-R-A Life. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Today we spoke with Nick Littlehales, sports sleep coach, redefining human recovery. Nick started off as an international sales marketing director for Slumberland Group, chaired the UK Sleep Council, and for the best part of two decades, has redefined and revolutionized sleep and recovery practices for the most elite organizations. Nick has consulted with Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, with Liverpool FC, Real Madrid, Man City, Team Sky, British Cycling, amongst many other high-performance teams. His R90 technique has been tried and tested by elite athletes looking for better sleep for improved performance. He's written a well-researched and practical book called Sleep, which we highly recommend you reading too. Today we spoke about the importance of light and how that affects our circadian rhythm. We discuss sleep cycles, naps, optimum recovery practices, and how to approach a bad night's sleep or disturbed sleep due to young children. Nick dives into night owls and early risers and why recovery is vital for performance and well-being in sport, work, and life. Nick sheds light on whole day recovery rather than just sleep at night and busts the myth of eight hours. Nick Littlehales, thanks a million for joining us. How are you today, Nick? I'm extremely well. Bit of a busy day, but it's nice and sunny. So here in Nottingham, UK, so it's uh, it's all good. Ready for the weekend. Really looking forward to talking about the big thing that you've done a lot of research, obviously, and well publishing. But before we get to that, did you sleep well last night? Quite some time ago, um, in my journey of redefining sleep, I created a technique that's just a bit more of a natural rhythm with um, the everyday circadian process, which no doubt we'll go into. And so I stopped worrying about how well I'm going to sleep on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I just do what I need to do every day, and it just reveals itself. So, you know, I sleep as good as I possibly could do every day. And Nick, I see a few jerseys behind you, some high-performing teams. I think it's Manchester City there. You've worked in that space an awful lot. Mm-hmm. What got you into that environment and into the sleep environment overall? Purely by accident, to be honest. You know, I loved sports as a teenager, tried to sort of get into the professional games, whatever it was, cricket, football, anything, athletics, you name it, like a lot of teenagers do. I, I spent a little bit of time as a, an aspiring sort of golf professional, but that was way back in the late 70s, completely different sport to where it is now. I sort of didn't get to those levels and uh, ended up joining a furniture industry, getting married and starting a family. And that happened to be a, a company called Slumberland, who made beds and stuff like that. And I had no interest in that subject whatsoever, but it was to pay the bills. 
Um, I ended up becoming the international sales and marketing director for them in my early 30s. I traveled around the world because it was a big company, lots of licensees all over the world and spent a lot of time with professors of sleep. And we set up the first UK Sleep Council as a little collaborative team, which I was the chairman of. And I got to my mid 40s and just thought, yeah, it's taken for granted. It's not a performance criteria. It is a health pillar, but there's no education, no nothing. I just thought I'm going to go off and do something else. My UK office was in Oldham in Manchester, UK. I got asked, because I was the sales director, if I would sponsor the shirts of Oldham Football Club, which is the local football team. Mm-hmm. I just thought that would be a nice thing to do because a lot of the workforce in the factory were all Oldham football fans. And I thought it'd be nice to see their company they worked for on their shirts. And that was all it was. So I signed the check. Because of that, I got invited along to some football events at Oldham Athletic uh, and various other things. And, you know, unbeknown to me, the clubs around the Northwest were a breeding ground for a club called Manchester United. So I bumped into Manchester United and uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, then Alex Ferguson. It was just random conversations over drinks and chats and sponsorship and all sorts of stuff. And he and the rest of the club were all human beings who sleep. But I developed some sort of knowledge. You could actually look at this whole subject in a different way. So look at it like in recovery. So I got involved with the physio day fever. And we started to look at one particular player called Gary Pallister, who was a centre-half, a very well-known player. We were always trying to look at about his postural care and you know, sleeping for hours and not getting any rehabilitation. Or so we did one or two things there, and that started dialogue off. So we just became more intrigued about things, and Alex Ferguson was changing stuff, uh, unlike other managers in the council. So purely by accident, my UK office was in Oldham, Manchester. I spent some money on some shirts in Oldham Athletic. I bumped into Alex Ferguson. That was the class of 92. You know, you look back at it and think, what a wonderful time that was for the club. But, you know, it was just purely by accident. It was the late 90s, and they went and won the treble. You know, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer did that classic little thing against Bayern, naked. So the press was over them. A lot of the players played for the national squad, the England squad. So they were talking to the England squad staff about they've got this guy, you know, talks them about stuff and things. And the physio at the time for the England squad was a guy called Gary Lewin. Gary Lewin was also the physio for Arsenal Football Club. And he just started experiencing this new French manager called Arsene Wenger, who was had a completely different approach to managing elite athletes and players. So he got in touch with me. I was asked to go into Arsenal Football Club to do our first team workshop, which was completely different to Manchester United because there was a lot of homegrown you know, British players, and, you know, the class of 92 and all that stuff. But within Arsenal, it was a completely multicultural, you know, totally different cultures all over the place, from Henri to, you know, Clichy to Adi Bayor to, you know, all of them. They were just a complete mix. And I just thought, what am I doing? You know, I'm actually talking to players about sleep. I'm kind of like making it up but not making up the project and the importance of it, but I'm actually making this up in some respects. And of course, back then with the press and media, I suddenly woke up and there it was in the Manchester United Arsenal England squad. I've got some sort of guy talking to him about sleep. So they called me a coach. And I thought, okay, that's my title, is it? So that was the journey where it started. It was 
nothing more than that, guys. Yeah, I love that. What a what an amazing story from mattresses and beds and, and selling and oldham athletic. If we rewind back, you mentioned circadian rhythms. And it's something obviously where as physios we have a little bit of a knowledge as to what that means. But for for some people listening to this, obviously that's something that answer that you said through the first question. What what is that all about when it's not necessarily about the sleep you had last night? It's kind of what the day looks like. Yeah, I think it's yeah, when I was going through the process of researching and talking and listening all about sleep and everything else, you came across these things. Ones were things like circadian rhythms, which is, uh, you know, in in simple terms, it's the sun rolling around our planet. It has no relationship to human beings. It it, uh, has no relationship to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. It has no relationship to the 24-hour-plus clock we put on it. It rolls around our planet and creates these sort of internal internal body clocks along with those external clock, which is the sun. And the main thing about it is the shift between daylight to diminished light and dark. And along that process, there's two particular hormones called melatonin and serotonin, which pretty much set that clock. Serotonin is the unsuppressed active hormone that tells the brain to be active and be awake and, and, and so much else, which we're learning about. And melatonin takes you towards that place where you could enter a recovery period called sleep. And that goes on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. And it's got no relation to everything else. And our relationship with human beings with brains and bodily functions are very much synchronized with that process. But human beings are not smart. So they've invented things, other like other everything else on this planet that goes with that flow. They invent things like electric light, technology, 24-7, daylight saving time. They create all these little things that sort of, I think now we sort of realize that we're, we're far more desynchronized with this very natural, wonderful process that it's, it's time to reflect on that and take more advantage of it and, and make it make sleep more the first health pillar, not the third or fourth health pillar. Because And change its, change your language about it. That's what I've been doing in sports is, is don't look at it as like sleep and that perception. Oh, it's something you do at the end of the day when there's nothing better to do. You wake up in the morning, it doesn't matter how well you've slept, you just get on with your day. It doesn't, it's not a performance criteria in that sense. There's circadian rhythms, there's chronotypes, and there's polyphasic sleeping. These things you find out that actually we've done these things as human beings, so I'm not making it up. And you can use those things to really change the way any human being approaches their recovery in high-pressure elite sports or just everyday life. They have really cute little things, and they're, they're available to you, and you don't have to invest in it. You just have to realize that the lack of education so parents don't pass it on to children and vice versa. It's not looked at in schools at any level or even universities. Even surgeons and doctors and, and lots of people just wander around without any knowledge about this wonderful thing. When you actually get to a place where you can create that more natural process to your day, like you said, because your brain is in control of what happens when you're into sleep. You're not in control now because you've released yourself to your brain and your brain takes over so the point that you made david is why you don't focus on what happens while you're asleep 
we focus on everything you do from the point of weight right throughout that sort of 24 hour cycle because if you're if you're working in a little bit more harmony if you're helping your brain that's constantly adapting then when you want to go into a sleep state a recovery state your brain will take over and do it for you so it's it's a really wonderful place like you asked me how did i sleep last night well you know i just do all the good stuff throughout the day to help my brain and then when i say take over it does and it works <laughs> that's brilliant and you mentioned before about education being a big thing you want people to look at these things and understand them for themselves when you went into professional sport early on you spoke about it there as sort of a fortunate sequence of events and people were interested did you ever face resistance in large organizations or elite organizations you've worked in i've never felt any resistance because it's only people who are interested who ask me to get involved so there was no resistance. The resistance to it, I was not aware of it because people don't ask me to get involved. So along that journey, it was sort of like, so it's Alex Ferguson, the guys there at the club, and he started thinking about, uh, they were very sort of proactive. There's a couple of, one was Sam Allardyce at Bolton then, uh, Alex Ferguson. If it had been any other club, the conversations would never have developed, you know, from a glass of wine at some do, you know. But it was because Alex Ferguson, if we don't know anything about this, Nick, why don't we look into it? Sam Allardyce was like that. So let's uh, let's double up pre-season training. Never been done before. And we train in the morning and in the afternoon. Never been done before. You know, I was involved with that process. And there was data collection going on, which you know all about. And it's sort of like, we've only ever been collecting data from footballers training in the morning and then they go home in the afternoon then they started training in the afternoon and they were looking at this data and going why is this data suddenly skewing a little bit you know sort of like we've got 10 players five of them seem to smash it the other five are sort of you know eight out of ten but in the afternoon the other five are smashing it and the other ones have gone to eight out of ten we've never seen that before so that the manager's choices for players was always skewed by the data that these were the best five players and these other five players should sit on the bench. But then he looked, hang on a minute, the afternoon, that switch. Why could that be, Nick? Well, if you look at them putting their boots on in the, in the changing room, those five are quite clearly got a chronotype called a nighttime chronotype. They're nighttimers. These other five, our morning chronotype. You know, what's a chronotype? Okay. Well, it's a little genetic twist of how quickly you produce serotonin in the morning with the daylight. So those five players are literally, they're still in bed, hitting the snooze button. They jump into the car, travel to the training ground, and off they go training. The other five have actually got up, had breakfast, hydrated, probably done some mental challenges. They come to the training ground and bingo. Wow. I'm actually a nighttime person. <laughs> the doc says, I'm a morning type. And Alex Ferguson goes, well, I'm in here at 5 o'clock in the morning, so I'm definitely a morning type. And it's just like, hang on a minute. And I think there was no resistance because it just seemed, it, it is logical sense, but it never been translated into a world where they are looking for high achievers and performers. And suddenly it's sort of like, you know, moved away from the three o'clock kickoff on Saturday to Champions League, to Europa Leagues, to 12.30 kickoffs, three o'clock, 5.45s, 
745s. And, and it's like, whoa, maybe we can coach the team that knowing that knowledge, maybe for certain games in certain situations, there might be the tactics and all that other thing going on. But there's also maybe that player would be better for a 745 kickoff than the other defender. That's when you start, ooh, hello, let's start looking at that. And that was two decades ago. Now, there are very specific reasons why certain organisations seem to be able to perform far more consistently, like you mentioned the shirt behind me, because we've been doing that sort of stuff with them for a number of years. And just to break that down a little bit further, we understand some people better for the evening, afternoon, for the people that say, oh, I'm not a morning person, I'm not getting up, no, I can't do it. And they're in foul form and they just take so long to get ready and they need their cup of coffee. And there's so many people like that out there. I'm like that. How can we train those people to be more effective, to be more in tune, not quite the 7.45 kickoff first thing in the morning, but to be to nearly switch their type? And is that possible? Well, you, you can camouflage it, you can ignore it, and you can override it, okay? But it is a little genetic twist. So you can do those things. So what we started to do was say, look, all the in any particular group, all the nighttime chronotypes, which is very easy to spot, like the morning chronotypes, you, know, you don't have to do a test. You know it, don't you? You can feel it. And there's probably more nighttime chronotypes on, in the population than morning chronotypes. But the fact is, it's a morning chronotype world that we live in. You know, we don't start work at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. We don't take the kids to school at 10 or 11 o'clock. It just doesn't work. So what you have to say is, to the nighttime chronotype, the thing that slows you down, the thing that doesn't get you going, is not only your exposure to this daylight, but inside the daylight is an energy wave called blue light. And the blue light triggers a light receptor behind your eyes to the pineal gland, which is a little gland, and it triggers this serotonin and it tells the brain to be active and unsuppress everything. So what we need to do is the AMS are reacting to this 5, 6 o'clock, 6.30. They are reacting to this. Even if they're in their bedroom with the curtains shut, they are reacting to this shift. Easy. PM is a knock. So what we do is say, well, you need to create sunrise in your bedroom and you need to get up earlier but it's not just put the alarm clock on it because you're just snoozing right what we have to do is to, to use a, a synthetic approach to use a tool called a dawn wake simulator which is a little lamp it's chucking out ten thousand lux which is what you measure light in daylight is from sunrise to midday can be 80 to a hundred thousand lux right big stuff if you're outside so we need to create that so the pm is in their bed curtains shut this light comes on starts to bring that sunrise and that blue light into their room into those receptors creating that serotonin so the alarm goes off to get them up earlier but they feel much better for it because we've stimulated it naturally rather than waking late and hitting five expressos or anything else that they can get their hands on these days you can't just let's do training later just for them. No, that doesn't work. So the training times are the same. Everybody has to be in at the same time. But now you understand that 50% of your squad 
and your coaches need to have some help. So we started putting uh, lamps in the changing rooms, just there, sat over there, just giving the right levels of light off to stimulate that process. You know, for anybody listening to this, it's not about, you know, you don't want to keep fighting it, but when you've got your own understanding of that circadian rhythm, blue light, chronotype, balance, is once you get that in place, you can really start to protect yourself at certain points in the day, take advantage of certain points in the day, and, and deal with those things brilliantly. So, and that translates into travel and all sorts of stuff. So we, we sort of create a process. Of, we even change, you know, where the meeting rooms, you know, we they always have this meeting about statistics and tactics in this particular room. And I just went, there's a room on the other side of the playground that's got a full block of windows with the light coming straight the way through. And if we get the players over there and sit them down there, they don't realise it. Nobody else realises that they're getting, it's like plugging your phone in and recharging your brain. And it's, so that's how you sort of start the process of once you understand these key sort of recovery indicators, like you asked me before, is like all throughout my day, nobody actually realizes what I'm doing. Sometimes they might if they're sat in my office in my desk because I've got a little lamp up here. And every 90 minutes, it comes on for 15 minutes if I can't step outside or go near a window. Because what I'm trying to do is keep a balance between the melatonin and the serotonin and the production of it, that helps all the bodily functions, as you know, and all that sort of stuff. But I'm just, you know, if I sat in my office where I am now, I'm I'm actually staring out into the garden, and it's a sunny day, and there's only glass between me and the outside garden. But where I'm sat right now is 210 lux. If I I go nothing more than an arm's length from where I am now, by the window, just go closer to the window, it hits 5,000 lux. If I go the other side of that glass, it's 80,000 lux. Now, that's the sort of difference between being, you know, at your optimum best or just being in a active state. That's where you find the difference between any group or any individual athlete or any person or whatever it is. is you, they become a shadow of who they could be, so they're creating personal best. They could even be creating world records, right? To keep that consistent, to keep pressing those buttons, which is what we did a lot with British Cycling and Team Sky and all that stuff back in, you know, 2018 to 2012 and stuff like that, is that's that's the difference. Most people, they spend most of their time, they know getting outside is important and they know exercise is important, they know nutrition is important, they know these things are important, but what they don't know is there is an amazing amazing human performance tool called recovery it's an activity and when you get it on board and you get yourself a little bit more synchronized with this process which is completely natural you probably wouldn't even recognize who you are tomorrow once you start doing those things that's huge and i think what you're trying to do with sports sleep coach and given that education on we often use the nighttime and sleep. How will I get my sleep better? Well, I'll do something just before it. But the whole day is the process of how you're going to improve that. I think that's so key from what you speak about. I think so. I mean, you know, you we all know, don't we? You can't just turn up to a hundred meter sprint final and wonder about where your shoes, where your where your spikes are, or where your 
dehydrate. You can just can't turn up, can you? So it's like, oh, pre-sleep. What do I do in the last 60 minutes or half an hour or whatever before I go to sleep? It's too late. It's way too late. Because when you look at all those factors, if you've not been, if you've not been during the course of the day well and being able to put that digestive process in and process all those foods, hydrating, not overhydrating, managing what you're doing, light is essential to all that. If you don't enter a sort of diminished light period, which is phase three, which is the evening of the four phases of the day, and if you're so you just can't go, oh, I'll listen to some whale noises, we'll get some sensory oils and binaural boots. I'll start listening to some, you know, calming podcasts of people with nice voices or, or anything else you want to do. It's just the only factor there is warm to cool and light to dark. That's it. If you haven't got that process going on, and if you haven't, you know, if you've dragged yourself into the day, that's why we focus on post-sleep. We don't care how well you've slept, whether you've had lots of awakenings, whether you've been up all night, whether you feel refreshed or energized, just forget it. It's gone. Wake up, loads of light, hydrate, fuel up, mental challenges, uh, bowel and bladder, pick yourself into the day and wake your body up and your brain. And once you start having this little bit of a harmony, it's almost like, well, if you keep doing that every morning, for me, says the brain, then I will be able to start aligning us better to certain things. I want little recovery breaks every 90 minutes, right? Just point me in a different direction for a couple of minutes. Take me near some stronger light so we can keep that serotonin. And it's just like all these little factors come together. And then you start thinking about sleep recovery in cycles rather than hours. And suddenly you get this really subconscious flow of what happens when and why and and it's not like even a routine. It just flows brilliantly, and then your brain can take over. And when it does, you know, it's it's got a difficult task because the world that we put it under, it's, it puts it under pressure. I think we've been getting away with it, maybe, guys. Yeah, maybe up until the mid-'90s. You know, we didn't have phones then, yada, yada. Last two decades, things have really shifted almost in a paradigm way, and I think that's what it is. We're, we are challenging ourselves as human beings on all sorts of levels, whether it's parents, whether it's kids, whether it's teenagers, whether it's surgeons, pilots, or athletes, or as I think Oli Gullin-Solskjaer said last night, we've got like 15 games in 10 days. <laughs> I exaggerate. <laughs> it's like, nuts. This is just completely nuts. You know, we're... It's a wonder if even we can kick the ball around. So what I hope anybody listening to this and all the people you work with and coach, and that sort of next generation will redefine what human recovery is all about so that we can actually manage it much better for what's to come, which is certainly not going to slow us down. I think we're all very aware we've got this really exciting stuff going on. Amazing, but it's social media, technological advancements, research. This, it's amazing, isn't it? But we also know how dangerous it is because we're we're in a sort of complete social experiment, and and so I think it's really difficult for anybody to roll through their twenty four hours comfortably and confidently unless they've got some sort of definitive approach in their back pocket. Otherwise, they're going to get very insomniacal, or they'll start dipping into addictive things. 
They'll start tapping into things that you could never get hold of, you know, pre-technology. And for some, it's dropout, burnout. It's mental health and well-being. For a lot of organizations, there's a lot of addictive behavior going on, all the pandemic-type stuff, and also people taking their lives. So don't want to put all the fear factor on it, but we should be the healthiest, fittest, most knowledge human populations ever walk this planet. But it kind of doesn't feel like that for a, a mass of the population. For a few, it probably does. But in general terms, when I get asked to go into clubs, it's probably two two-sided approach, which is one is to protect the individuals, and the other one is to try and reveal optimum human recovery performance, right? That's certainly been gathering a pace over the last few years. Look, Nick, you've, you've touched on so much there, evidence, nature, innovation, tech. I suppose what has put to us so often, and I can just, I can think of my home situation. I have a, a three-year-old and a seven-month-old and a wife, and we don't always sleep the greatest. And so we've tried nutraceuticals, we've tried kiwi fruit, we've tried tart cherry juice, we've tried journaling, we've tried the whale sounds, the bonaro, we've done all that stuff as well. Mm. I love what you say that, well, you know, you have to just pack it and, and move on from the fact whether you slept well or not, it's about the recovery practice throughout the day. What do you say to that? To What can I go home and say to my wife who might be a bit stressed about, don't think I slept so well, oh, I'm really tired. How can we flip that mindset piece in the morning so that it doesn't reverberate through her morning and that we can kind of own that and get over it and move to the space where we want to be, like you're saying, where we'll all be a bit more enlightened, a little bit brighter, fresher and product and more productive. You just got to make the decision you want to do it. <laughs> it's like anything, isn't it? You, you know, I think um, I'm not here to promote my book, but you know, if you read my book called Sleep, which is all about that journey, it's about the seven KSRIs from one to seven. It's it's simple, it's practical, it's done in a sort of storytelling way. It's not clinical or academic. And and you can read it front to back or back to front or in whatever you want to do. And, and you will find little practical, achievable things in there that you can just start doing tomorrow. I think it, it's just the realisation that, like you pointed out, this is what most of us do, which is what frustrated me. Um, and I fell into the world of sport, but, you know, that's fine. But that's what frustrated me is what you look for is without that knowledge, without that understanding, without it being part of the parental approach into you and then you onto your children and vice versa and everything else that you do, you look for quick fix isolated solutions. And those things never work. Because you can't just listen to whale noises if you've overexposed yourself to blue light and you've got so much serotonin going on in your head at the wrong period of time. You know, listening to whale noises is not going to get rid of that. I think what I would suggest to you, it's it's really like you've got two children. Maybe let's just exaggerate. One of them's a night timer, the other one's a morning type. And yet as parents, you probably endeavor, like my family does with my grandchildren, to get their kids all off to bed as early as possible to give some human beings some social time. Agreed. Right? And it's sort of like, well, hang on a minute. You know, one's at a.m. and one's at p.m. We're trying to make them do everything at the same time. We want them to go to sleep at the same time. We want to create that space. Never mind that we actually looked at the chronotype between you and your partner. 
did you choose your partner because it was the right prototype or just because you, you fancied what they were wearing or you come here often you want to drink? There's, there's, lots of, there's lots of things that just happen in front of you when, you know, with more knowledge, it's so much easier. You know, when I meet people, you know, I happen to be single, so if I meet, you know, other potential friends or lovers or partners or potential life, you know, you know, I'm going like, hang on a minute, you're left-handed, you're right-handed like me, that ain't good. Do you like breakfast? And they go, nah, I don't really like breakfast. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so you're not, you're a PM and I'm an AM. Okay, okay, that's probably not going to work out that well, you know. So thank you very much. I find you extremely attractive, but beyond the courting and all that all sort of initial stuff, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you, you're not the right person for me because you're going to create problems. We're going to create problems for you sort of, in, in living our lives. So there's a bit of juice going off. And stuff. But then you just sit down and just go, identify the chronotypes of your family, identify what you do every day, and see if you can make some subtle little changes. Brings that to the fore. So my ideal partner, because I'm an am and I'm right-handed. Right-handed means I need to sleep on my left side because that's less sensitive because that's a human natural fetal position, opposite side to your dominant side, curled up, heart, genitals protected, fetal position. That's what the human brain wants you to do to take you through these wonderful sleep stages. So if I've got a partner who's also right-handed, then when we're sort of sharing a bed, there's a sort of complexity of which side we're on when we turn away from each other to curl up and go to sleep. Then you've got, if I'm an AM, then I can get up, kickstart my PM as day because they need help. So I switch the lamp on, get things going. And then in the evening, when I'm getting a little bit, they can help me because they're quite happy to be up at 12 and 11 o'clock And take the stress out of your day if you've got an AM a child and a PM a child because there's a lot of stress and anxiety that goes on all day long trying to get those two kids to do exactly the same as what they do. They sleep in the same bedroom, in bunk beds or whatever it might be. So, you know, if you put a dormant simulator in their bedroom, it won't affect the AM a child. It won't damage them at all because they're ready to rock anyway. But it will certainly help the other ones get out of bed and start day there. You know, I think it's not a very good definitive answer to your question, but you certainly start to make some steps. And you're absolutely right. When people come along and say, oh, Nick, you know, I'm taking this cherry active stuff and it's not working. I'm taking this and it's not working. And I'm trying to, I'm using this tracker, Nick, and it's going only get 6.25 hours and a few awakenings and not enough deep sleep. I said, okay, what are you going to do with that information? <laughs> You're going to not, you're not looking for this? Like, yeah, but I'm really worried about it. I said, well, I'll skip it off then. It's a really natural process. So probably I'd just advise you to read the book if you haven't already. I'm sure you have. And look, we're physios, so data is huge for us, like tracking outcome measures. And we both would have used whoop bands and aura rings. And sometimes seeing the score, exactly what you've spoken about, we see the score and it's low. It's like, oh no, 10% recovery. Um, that's me for the day. I'm not going to perform today because I've done so badly the yeah. night before. Yeah. When we're used to dealing with clients, we would have normally pointed them towards that. Okay, so you're you're not doing well. How can we improve the sleep? Well, we got to track it. We're physios. We got to know the data. So, you can't yeah, what would you say? It in sport, you know, it doesn't. It, if you can't measure it in sport, it doesn't happen, does it? it doesn't happen exactly. The, the point is, is that all the data collection that we've been making, 
whether it's around nutrition, whether it's around exercise and this and heart rate variability and all this sort of stuff. It's it's when you're mentally and physically active, right? You're with a physio or you're with a personal trainer or you're with a coach and you're doing something physical and they can monitor how what's happening, right? And they go, hang on a minute, let's just slow it down and let them take it up a bit. They can create training programs that, that, that creates what they know is the optimum for any personal human being. They can manage it to that individual human being as well, can't they? All of that is mental and physical activity. When you're asleep, the data that's being collected is you're not mentally and physically active. Right? So what it's doing is you don't have any relationship with it because you are not part of the process. You know this, don't you? You know, if you're rehabilitating somebody and they just they come in and go, oh, look, you know, this is aching all the hamstrings, whatever, and you do your thing and bingo, there's a result. But if they go on and continue to do the wrong things, they're going to be back on your desk again, aren't they? So you're always doing this, aren't you? So everybody knows about it. Heart rate variability, the practice, it's great. Take the heart rate up. You know, what's your resting heart rate? You sit in a chair, you can put your thing on your pulse and just go, all right, 60, that's okay. Ooh, 30. Ooh, blimey. Is that okay or not okay? And, or, wow, 130. Well, we'll <laughs> bit, you know, just bring it back. You know, all of this stuff is great, isn't it? But you have no effect on it. So you wake up and look at data. And it is only guessing. I mean, some of it's great, and it, it's really cute. And we use it in a very managed way. Um, but it is still guessing, because the only way you can actually get the real true data is off the frontal lobe with a brainwave pattern, right? And, and everything else is either using pulse, heart rate, uh, accelerometers and apps, movement, stuff like that to sort of kind of suggest that's what's going on. But in the same respect, if you don't know how many hours or minutes or seconds you should be in a recovery state, how much of that period should be in a deep sleep state and what percentage it should be, you've got nothing to gauge it. Right? you just got no parameters. So it's sort of like, what are you trying to achieve? 7.25 hours sleep every night, 365 with 15%. REM and non-REM and no awakening. Right, so how are you going to do that? Because this morning you woke up and felt quite good, felt pretty energised, and you looked at that day and you said, oh, that was a bad night. What's all that about? It was already a medical term. Well, the anxiety and stress that sleep tracking, right? sleep tracking in that sense, creates levels, further levels of anxiety and stress into your day right at the start of it. Because right? it's normally like, you know, what was my sleep like last night? So when we started putting it into the hands of elite athletes, and they just go, I don't want to look at that. <laughs> I've got an Olympic final this afternoon. <laughs> you know what I mean? And actually, Nick told me to not even try and sleep the night before an Olympic final or a major event because there's too much going on, trying to force yourself to sleep and all that sort of stuff. We do other recovery things. And we all know, and we do as you do as parents and you do as guys, we all know that there's plenty of nights where we're sort of tossing and turning, thinking about stuff, and, oh, God, this is going to happen. You know, 
have I been picked for the Lions tour? <laughs> I can see you've got some rugby stuff on there. <laughs> yeah. Then you sort of start your day and absolutely smash it, don't you? And it's sort of, that's the relationship with the rolling recovery process is, is getting this knowledge that actually trying to just have the mindset of get your eight hours every night. And if you fail to do that, it's basically, if you're going backwards, then yeah. Know, so many nights in any month that I would just not even try to sleep. I'm not being inactive because I've got a, a recovery program that's going on all the time. So it sort of balances it. You know? And that's the only way certain teams are getting through these very heavy schedules right now is because they understand this process. For a short period of time, they can increase the polyphasic sleep approach. They can increase that multiphasic recovery 24-hour approach because they're in a very particular intense time if you try and get all of those people to think this eight hours concept at night it ain't going to work they're just going to go backwards but if you shift it three cycles that night one in the afternoon one there 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 cool next seven days sorted you know just start with some little tiny steps Nick, we, we've learned a lot. I'm kind of curious about, you've got the book out there. You've got all this work that you've done thus far with lots of different teams, and we've learned a lot today. What's next for Nick Little Hills? That's a good question. I think, um, I think probably what's shifted for me is because it's sort of, I've been stuck away in sort of very lonely world as a sleep coach because you've got plenty of physios to talk to, haven't you? <laughs> but... <laughs> There was no sleep coaches. So it was sort of like, I can't even go and have a chat to somebody or where the mentor or nothing. So it was just been rolling along, moving from one organization to another and things have been developing. And I think what's, what happened over the last few years is that there is far more interest in this health pillar, but not in the way that most people perceive it. Sleep and naps and eight hours, don't eat too late, get your bedroom 16 to 18 degrees, yada, yada, yada. Nobody even does this. What we've done is I've been trying to redefine it, and what I mean by it is to stop stop people's perception about what sleep is. Just stop talking about sleep. It's got that perception. It's just do nothing. It just doesn't have any relevance. And, And napping... That's a bad thing because it's, it's the brain and you trying to, well, not even trying, it just randomly happens and that's why it's snoozes for losers. But actually, if you break your day up, you get more aligned with this natural circadian rhythm because it's never going to change. It doesn't matter what we do as human beings. We have a brain and bodily functions. The sun's going around our planet and those things ain't never going to change. If they do, it's all over. So whatever else you do around that, that's that's the core, right? That's your real core. So I think what I'm doing now is stop talking about sleep and all we talk about is optimizing human recovery performance. Thinking cycles, we think in controlled recovery periods. The language has changed and we can now see it as a real tool. So I think my you know, I've turned sixty in a weird base of time globally um, but most the majority of the work I'm doing you know the the three clients I'm working with at the moment is all academy level within inside people like Manchester City I'm work, 
working with the academy levels, within all the clubs, it's academy. It's always, always sometimes about the first team. But what we're trying to do is make sure that, you know, the new set of athletes and performers and everything else, uh, we are catching up and giving them the education and awareness they need to make this. And I hope we'll find something else that, around this human recovery process that will, you know, make us even more resilient, which I think is a good thing because it's a dangerous world. But yeah, I'm just off on another journey to really find it again. But I've got more friends now. definitely got more people involved so it's handy to have nice conversations with people who are actually taking it on board because it was a pretty lonely journey up until then so I think that's it it's just nice now that I've got I've got so many more people like you guys just going like wow let's have a go at doing it you know because I was just doing it on my own never knowing really what I was doing but now I mean you guys are interested how many more people interested physios, strength and conditioning coaches, all sorts of people. But it's not that same space that it used to be. It's out of that space. And it sits in your world as physios and strength and conditioning coaches and sports science and and performance, but also, also taking full advantage of this very natural process. And that's the nice thing that sports sometimes over data collect, you know, just collect so much stuff. But I think it, what we're trying to do is now, not trying to do, but you, you can see there's a lot more people that I'm associated with and working with that we've finally started to put this as the first health pillar. If your recovery approach in a rolling 24-7 approach, it means that you will not get what you think, what you could get out of your nutritional plan, training programs, out of your sports psychology Whatever it is you're doing beyond that will be sort of slightly diminished if your recovery is bad. <laughs> you just said it. So I think that's where we're going is in that building block is that if we get that more defined, then we can build on that and get more out of the other things. We know so much more about it. Whereas the other way is eat the right stuff, train the right way, get all those things in place. And then just send them home and say, I'll see you sort of like eight hours later. It's like, like, what have we been doing? (laughs) That's where I am now, is to slot it right in to make sure it's it's the key health pillar. And then you start to say, wow, you start to see humans performing at different levels, which is what we all want, don't we? We just want to smash it and live life to the full and live as long as possible don't we so i think when you put it at the start it's amazing what can be revealed and i've been part of a number of projects and and, and projects right now where it's very clear that because we put human recovery as as the fundamental health pillar the nutritional stuff seems to be making more relevance the, there's more interaction with it. The, the training programs, the performance factors, the consistencies, the the injury time recovery. Right? You know, you get an injury and it's a bit quicker. You, you start to see that shift. It's not about oh, well, I'm a sleep coach and yeah, make it the first health pillar. I think people like you and lots of other people have suddenly started to realise that there is there is some enormous benefit to everything else that we do. And I'm sure, you know, your interest, I've worked with a lot of physios and stuff like that, so excuse me, correct me if I'm wrong, but your interest is not to have, as Dave Fever said to me at Manchester United, you know, two decades ago, I'm sick and tired of this player 
coming in every morning, and I have to keep, and he came up with a word called dehabilitated. He said, believe me, rehabilitated. And then he goes home, driving his Ferrari, goes home, sleeps on some more in an environment with the kids and the family. He comes back here, and they've got to put it right again. You want to put it right and stop it happening. Yeah, as I mentioned to start, the tools, the education, that's what you're trying to deliver. And you have two flag bearers. That's why we would have reached out today because we read the book. And that's a keen interest of ours. But one other thing that's a keen interest is about performance. And it's why really we got involved in the podcast. So everyone that comes on, we ask this question. Okay. And we'd like it to put it to you, Nick. Okay. What does high performance mean to you? What does high performance mean? I think it's just how close you are to your personal best every day, every 24 hours. I think that, you know, the highs and the lows, I think that's what you're looking for in consistently is you can't be your personal best every minute of every 24 hours. But how close are you to that personal best? Well, it's mental and physical, mood or motivation, you know, all of those factors, being happy, that high performance is, is about feeling in a wonderful, natural way that you're doing your best every day. Nick Littlehills, we'd like to say thanks very much for your time, giving us your energy. You've also, in the past, sent us over something for Hawora, our, our company here. We didn't forget that. So tes testament to you. Thanks again for that as well. Um, everyone, we're going to put in a link to, to Nick's book, which we have read. We'll put it in into the notes so everyone can have a look at that. And Nick, wishing you all the very best moving forward and, and stay very well. Thanks very much. It's been great. Thanks very much for having me on. And uh, keep in touch, guys. Cheers, Nick. Thanks, Nick. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A-Life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.